You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. one through 44 there's a misprint in the bulletin um, but if you want to go ahead and turn there um, again Acts 27 1 through 44 Acts is in the New Testament if you don't have a Bible with you or an app on your phone there is a Bible in the pew in front of you if you need one I'm going to be reading from the ESV Um, If you're able, will you please rise for the reading of God's word? And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmoni. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul had said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, 
They lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run onto rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, But they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the fair sail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought to safety on land. This is the word of God for the people of God. Good evening, my name is Ben Milner, one of the pastors here, and uh, we're looking at the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. Um, Also could be described as the Acts of Jesus, because it's part two of the two-part Luke-Acts series, and the book of Luke is the the life of Jesus on earth, and then the book of Acts is the life of Jesus after he ascends into heaven. So in the book of Acts, what you see is uh, the presence of the ascended Lord um, through his Holy Spirit, working in his people around, around the um, ancient Near East and spreading out his, his reign, the nature, the unique nature of his kind of rule and reign. And you see it start in Jerusalem 
And you begin to see his way of uh, ruling things, his way of governing things. It starts in Jerusalem, and then that kind of spreads out to Judea, and then Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And this trip in Acts 27 is uh, the place where you see the gospel taken farthest, almost all the way from Judea to Rome. So um, it's a very strange way to end the book of Acts. There's one more chapter left, but um, this is the penultimate chapter, and all the commentaries ask why a shipwreck, you know, why a long sea voyage, which is kind of obsessively detailed. I guess you could uh, hear that when Jenny read it. Um, it's geographically impeccable. It's like something that uh, Herman Melville would write from Moby Dick. It's uh, amazingly accurate in detail when you compare it to the, uh, the time, what we know about the time, other writers of the time. Luke is, um, is just amazing, and he, he wants it to be very precise so that you would know that these things really happened. Um, that's one reason he does that. But the, the other reason he does that is because uh, in, the, in the Bible, the ocean or the sea, the ocean is uh, a picture of chaos and destruction. So when we go to the ocean, we, when we go uh, you know, to the beach, uh, we think of it as a place of relaxation. They did not think of it that way. They thought of it as a place of turbulence and disorder and a place you could die. And they almost do die many times in this passage. So um, this is essentially Paul's death and resurrection. Uh, if you know, uh, the, the structure of the book of Luke and the structure of the book of Acts are very similar. So just as Jesus went to Jerusalem and was on trial, Paul went to Jerusalem and was on trial. And then Jesus uh, dies and rises from the grave at the end. And this is kind of Paul's death and resurrection. Because he's kind of going into the sea. Uh, he is basically almost dying. He really should have died. Uh, there was no hope at one point. And then three times he really very comes close to dying. And then yet, out of all of that, no one on the whole ship, not, not a hair from their head, is lost. Uh, no one dies. So it's kind of a death and resurrection. And um, I want to look at the, the chaos, which is the first main part of the, that's the, the bulk of the story. It's just the chaos. He, the writer wants you to feel the chaos of what it would be like to be on this little boat. Uh, but then also the second point is that God is in that chaos. The messenger of the Lord comes to Paul right in the middle, at the worst part, actually, the darkest time of the chaos. And he shows up and he says, uh, all of you will be saved. Do not be afraid. So that's what I want to look at, the chaos and then the way that Christ comes to Paul in that chaos. So first of all, we, we put to see, this is Luke and Paul together. That's why it's we. A lot of the book of Acts does not have the we, but at this point, Luke is writing and he's there. So Luke says, we put to sea, and they're in Caesarea, uh, which is in Judea, which is near Jerusalem. So they're, they're over there in Palestine. Uh, and we put to sea on a ship sailing to the ports along the coast of Asia. So that's Turkey. They're going along the southern coast of Turkey. And they actually make a, they make a uh, switch. But even uh, they switch uh, to a new boat when they get uh, to a certain place that's going to Rome. So it was kind of a two-part trip. I don't even know if the first part they knew where the second ship would be. But they're going out to sea. And just even hearing that sentence read in a synagogue or in a church, uh, any good uh, observant Jew would have known um, this is nerve-wracking. This is is not where you want to be. They would hear like the music of Jaws, you know, the, the silhouette of the huge shark. They would hear that deep cello music, and they would be already getting nervous that something's going to happen that's bad. 
And sure enough, in verse 4, it says, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, which is an island. So they're, they're hugging the coast of Cyprus because it's a lot safer to be near the shore. And it says the winds were against us. So they were, um, they were in danger because you couldn't, in a ship back then, you couldn't actually use the wind uh, and go kind of tack back and forth. They didn't know how to do that. So if the wind was against you, you were just going back the other way. So that's why they're really hugging the coast of Cyprus. And opposing winds were very deadly. So they stopped because they realized they're going the wrong way. So they just stopped the ship. And they stopped in a place called Fair Havens, which sounds very safe. Uh, and it says in verse 9 that they stayed in Fair Havens a long time. They knew the voyage to Rome would be dangerous because the Day of Atonement was over. That's what the fast means. So the Day of Atonement was October 5th. And that is the beginning of the no sailing season. It's like the hurricane season. Um, October 5th to basically February, you did not sail on the Mediterranean. Even today, you wouldn't want to sail on the Mediterranean in a small boat. Uh, back then, there were just no ships out at that time. But for some reason, this uh, centurion, Julius, who's running this operation, he decides uh, that they need to keep going. In spite of Paul's warning. Verse 10, Paul says, uh, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss. Not only the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, he's been shipwrecked three times. So this is not a prophecy that they're definitely going to die. He's just saying, based on my uh, nautical experience, which is probably greater than Julius's, uh, I'm perceiving this is not going to be a good idea at all. And it's funny that later on, Paul uh, reminds Julius that he said that. It's kind of a passive-aggressive dig. But Julius just completely ignores him. Verse 14 Uh, It says a tempestuous wind, a nor'easter, which we still have today. Uh, They obviously come down from the northeast. And then it says it struck down. And the verb is like a monster's claw coming down. It struck down from the cliffs of Crete, the island of Crete, which has these high cliffs. And so when the wind comes down, uh, it's personified as a, a, a mighty claw of an animal or creature of some kind. And so... If you notice, uh, it's personification, uh, and it's acting like the, the, the sea and the wind are this thing that is uh, active and, and has uh, actually intention and will and purpose. And sure enough, in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah 27.2, Leviathan, you might have heard of Leviathan. Uh, it's a book by Thomas Hobbes about government, but it's also in the Old Testament, it's the enemy of God. And in Isaiah 27.2, it calls Leviathan the twisting serpent, the dragon of the sea. So they didn't really believe there was a sea creature. They didn't believe that was actually a real thing. It's a personification of the ocean and the danger of the ocean. I thought about the, the movie um, Spider-Man. I think it's uh, the one he was in Europe. And uh, Mysterio is this uh, villain that he's fighting and Mysterio can take like anything, like sand or water, and create uh, this huge figure, like a monstrous figure, out of that substance. So uh, what Mysterio does, he takes the water in the Grand Canal in Venice, and he's like this monster that starts destroying things. And that's kind of the way the Israelites viewed Leviathan, this monster of the ocean. And so when this nor'easter strikes down from the cliffs of Crete, the New Testament view of that is that they're being attacked by something that's malevolent. They're in a, a grain ship that's 180 feet long, and there's 200 prisoners. And they're losing control. There's two sails on these boats. They're not big. You can Google the boat. 
Not a big boat. It says in verse 15, they were driven along. That means they have no control. And then in verse 17, it says uh, the ship was breaking up the center. They used supports to undergird the ship. So the, the bow is breaking up and they're trying to tie it around with some kind of uh, you know, lasso or some kind of rope. Something that will hold it together. And just think about a time. This is kind of what Luke wants you to experience. You, you should be thinking about a time when you have basically kind of lost control and you're coming unhinged. Life is becoming unhinged. It's literally beginning to crack up. You're beginning to crack up and fall apart. You're being attacked by some kind of chaos monster. And in, in Leviathan, in, in Psalm 74, 13, it's described as a multi-headed sea monster, like the Hydra, which has seven heads. And so you have different, the sea has different heads coming at you in different ways. So just think about a time when you've had something like this happen, or a friend that you might know that's in a situation like that, where it's just like you're in chaos. Uh, you're being enveloped in chaos. And mine is not hard to imagine because we experienced that this week. Um, it's a very first world problem. But among first world problems, for your AC to go out right now is not a good problem. And so our AC broke. Apparently they're breaking all over the place right now. Because I think we've had four of the hottest days in a row in the history of the planet. So um, ACs are breaking all over the place. So we have, we're, we have to wait three weeks for it to be repaired. And it's going to cost $10,000. And a repairman came five times to try to do different things to fix it. The house was like 85 degrees. And those first, um, the first nights and the first days, what I didn't realize about heat was it just, it just drained the life out of you. So I was kind of overwhelmed in some ways. I, w- I was lethargic in other ways. And it was just really hard. I couldn't really concentrate very well. And then, of course, this is what starts happening where you have the seven-headed hydra. In that time, I found out that my email had not been properly working. I was wondering why I kept having like only about three emails in my inbox for a long time. And all of a sudden, I found out I had 67 emails. This is in that day where it's uh, incredibly hot in my house. And um, some of them were really important. Uh, I had to fill out these three really long forms. And those always make me kind of nervous. PDF forms you have to sign and send back. And then there was one where I was trying to get the password to work. And this is kind of when I finally lost it. And uh, the new ones I kept trying to type in were too weak. You know, it always says too weak. And uh, you can't use these letters because you've used them too often in the past. And I was talking to a woman from the Trinity Counseling Center. I'm trying to set up an appointment for counseling. And I hang up the phone on her because I was so frustrated. Because my passwords wouldn't work. And she's probably thinking that's exactly why that guy needs counseling. Um, He can't even handle. Like I was literally in the middle of an interaction with her. Trying to find a password that would work. And I just ended the call. And uh, the funny thing is the day before that, I thought I was in a good place spiritually. And that's the way that chaos works. Is it, it, these storms are unpredictable. Um, it says in verse 17, they were fearing they would run aground against the Sirtis. And the Sirtis is still there to this day. It's these infamous sandbanks that are north of Libya, uh, just north, uh, north Africa. And if you hit one of these things, it would break up your ship. And that you didn't know where they were. They were entirely unpredictable. And so um, whether it's like social media, you know, it, just the way your social media is going, um, whether you're getting likes or not, whether you're popular or not, um, that can be like a service that just suddenly comes up. Like on the Titanic, you hit this iceberg or the stock market, you know, or the temperature outside, your mental health, um, romantic uh, experiences. These are just ways that the seven-headed hydra can come at you at different angles. And 
completely, you know, wreck you. You can be in a great place. Maybe you're in a great place right now and you're thankful that you're um, not in the middle of chaos, but tomorrow it could happen. Um, so again, like where are you feeling chaos or where have you been in chaos? Um, where a storm just would come out of nowhere. And, uh, you know, one area right now that's, that's in, in our culture is just gun violence. I mean, that's one where I've talked to people who just said, I don't feel necessarily comfortable because these things are so random now. It just feels like uh, this monster where there's chaos everywhere and things are out of control. Or just the uh, depression among teenagers, the anxiety and depression among young people, the amount of self-harm. I was uh, in, a, in a dark time in my life. I was reading a book about um, raising teenagers by Eugene Peterson. And he said, raising a teenager is like watching an acrobat somersaulting between the trapeze bars. So they're, they're, they've lost, they've, they have lost contact with this bar, and they're in the middle of the air, and they're in some kind of flip, and there's another bar over here to catch, and you don't know what's going to happen. And that's, that is inherently chaotic. So again, that's, that's what you should be feeling when you're hearing about this storm. Um, you should be feeling uh, chaos or uh, the anxiety of Paul's experience of someone who is Jewish in the middle of a storm in the Mediterranean Sea. Verse 20 says, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. All hope was lost. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. That's what it said on the gates of hell in Dante's Inferno. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. That's exactly what it says. Um, Many days, their ship is coming apart. There's no sun. There's no stars. The clouds are just thick black. And um, they've, they've lost all hope. And that is right where God appears. And it's so often the case. It's at the very bottom, right? At the, the bottom of the catastrophe. That's where God comes. And uh, we should expect to meet him there. Because he's a crucified God. He's a God who came to be with us in the low place. Uh, that's, the, that's the essential nature of Christianity. That's what makes Jesus such an amazing an exceptional uh, God is because unlike any other God, he came down to be with us and not just to be with us, but to become crucified with us. So we should expect to meet the Lord when all hope is lost. All hope of being saved was at last abandoned. And then verse 23, this very night there stood before me a messenger of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. That very night when there was no hope is when the messenger came. And it doesn't necessarily mean an angel. A messenger could be more than an angel. It could be the Holy Spirit. It could be the presence of Christ. But I love how Paul says, uh, the messenger of the God to whom I belong. Because that's where you realize who you belong to. It's when you are in the lowest place that you realize whose you are, to whom you belong. I love... um, the very first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death? My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own. I do not belong to myself, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that is, uh, that's where you realize who you belong to, is when you're at the bottom uh, in that catastrophe, the very bottom of the parabola, and you're... And you're at rock bottom and you realize that all that matters is who I belong to. And I belong to the crucified, the crucified God. And I love how Jesus uh, repeats the promise he made to Paul two years earlier. Let's just call it the Mario Kart promise because I keep comparing it to Mario Kart. 
if you played Mario Kart or any other video game where there are these invincibility stars, you're driving around. Um, Diddy Kong Racing has this too. Uh, if you hit a certain little, you know, a little shiny gold coin, then all of a sudden from that point for like another 20 seconds, you're invincible. You cannot be touched. And a, and a few weeks ago, um, actually it's two years ago now in the story of Acts, but I preached on it a few weeks ago. I said that when Paul was told by Jesus, you're going to get to Rome because you've got to tell Caesar himself the gospel. You're going to go to Rome. That meant from that point on, he was untouchable. He could not be killed. And he knows that. And so in verse 24, Jesus says, as I've told you before, Paul, do not be afraid because you must stand before Caesar. You must. It's that imperative. And I love how, because Paul is invincible, then all the sailors on the boat with them are also invincible. They get caught up in God's grace to Paul. Just because they're near him. Just because they're with him. This protection. Uh, the messenger says to Paul, verse 24, God has granted you all those who sail with you. you know, including the guards who are watching you. Including the guards who try to, almost tried to kill him later on. And you can, you can see from that, that that Paul has been praying for these people. Or else it wouldn't say he's granted to you all the people who are with you. Because he's been praying for them by name. He probably knew these fellow prisoners. He probably got to know their stories. Uh, probably, he knew Julius. Julius showed him favor. People were always showing Paul favor because he was such a kind, loving, listening ear. And so Paul, even though the sky is pitch black and there's no hope, the sky is still pitch black when he receives that vision. He can't see beyond the cloud bank at all. But there's, a, there's this vision he has of a radiance that's beyond them. It's not a vision of the eyes. It's nothing he can see with his eyes, but it's a vision spiritually. It's like the story I told uh, about six months ago where um, when Kiev was first being bombed, there's this famous YouTube video of a woman in a bomb shelter as the bombs are falling, and she's playing on the violin, What a Moonlit Night. So she's intentionally drawing their eyes above the bombs that are falling uh, to the sky above, to the moonlit, to the beautiful moonlit night. And that's what Paul is seeing here. And this vision that is beyond his visual sight is actually having more influence on his feelings than the storm is. It says in verse 25, take heart, this is Paul speaking to the whole crew, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. Can you imagine telling that crew, um, on all those sailors, uh, 200 plus people, uh, you can trust me on this, no one's going to die. It looks really bad right now, but I heard, I've had this vision an angel came to me, and I've had this vision, and uh, you, can be, uh, you can take heart. You can put yourself at ease. Put your mind at ease. You're not going to die. Promising them that to them, to these people with husbands and wives and children and parents, he's promising them that they will not be harmed. Um, a very famous uh, quote by Edwin Friedman, who wrote this book on leadership. Uh, you've probably heard this phrase a lot, a non-anxious presence. And Friedman says the function, the main function of a leader in any institution, so if you're a leader, whether it could be your home, it could be um, anything you're leading, but the main function of a leader as a teacher, um, whatever you're doing in any institution is to provide emotional regulation, which Paul is doing here, take heart, by your non-anxious presence amongst your people, your non-anxious presence. And Paul, because he had this vision, his confidence just infectious to the crew. It, it changed the, probably the nature of the whole boat 
for him to say, take heart. And I'm sure you can see in his body language, he was completely at ease. He was, he was, his emotions have been regulated. And he carried that vision to others, to other people. And so the question I was asking myself this week is, am I that in groups where I am a leader? Um, am I someone who actually not only are my own emotions regulated by a vision, but others are as well. I can actually tell them take heart. And I can actually see their emotions changing because of my emotion. Because we have been given a greater vision than Paul. I mean, Paul was told, you're not going to die. You're going to get through this storm. We've been told by God, uh, everything's going to be restored in this entire creation. Acts 3.21. Jesus said in 19, Matthew 19.28, I'm going to renew all things. I'm going to make everything sad come untrue. I'm going to renew everything. Revelation 21.5, he says, I am making all things new. I'm going to wipe away every tear. Romans 8.28, even now I'm working everything together for the good of getting there. So even getting there, everything's working together in your life for good to get to that place. The restoration of all things. So when we are in a storm, no matter what the storm is, like this little storm we're in right now, it's a small storm. But it's a bit of a storm. And within that storm we can say, God is somehow, every single part of this, the breaking down of the air conditioner is working towards the restoration of all things. In my life, in my family's life, in the whole world, somehow. And when you're in a storm, those ideas, you know, those words, those Bible verses begin to like glow. It's like in the Lord of the Rings when the ring of power at some point begins to glow and you see the elvish uh, runes written around it. You know, that's when in the storm, when everything is dark, you begin, the, the letters of the Bible begin to glow. Like they come off the page. And they begin to comfort you in a way they never did. When I was in the lowest place in my life, the Psalms were like the only thing I could read at all. And they were incredibly comforting. I can still see on the page, on my Bible, on the page of the Bible, the very location of where certain phrases were that I put a big box around. Now it says uh, in verse 27, they had 14 nights. They had to wait for this. So Paul tells them this vision and it takes two weeks to come to fruition. So they're... For a long time, they're waiting for this to happen. So you might have to hold on for a long time to this vision you have. Meanwhile, in verse, uh, it says that the ship is being torn apart by the pounding surf. The sailors almost jump overboard just to get away. And Paul says, if you jump overboard, you're all going to die, which is interesting because he was told they're not going to die. But then he warns them, if you jump overboard, you are going to die. So it's that mystery of God's predestination and and providence. And he has everything in control, and you've got to be responsible for doing the right thing. So uh, the guards almost kill the prisoners at the very end. The guards try to kill the prisoners because they know that if the prisoners escape, the guards will be killed by the Roman legions. But in all of this, the Holy Spirit is promising not a hair from anyone's head will perish. Not a single hair from any of you people. 200 people, not one hair will perish. And no one did. Now, again, they had to act. Verse, verse 31, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So you've got to act. It's a very strange paradox that the Bible has. Of this, God is in total control, and yet we are responsible. We have free will. We have to act. We have to do the right thing. But we can act knowing God is in control with a lot less anxiety. The terror, you know, the fear can be quelled, can be calmed. Now, there was a time in my life where it was not a first world problem. It was, it, was a, it was a problem that anyone in the world would be devastated by. My life was so overwhelming, it kind of narrowed down to one thing. We had to get through this one thing. We were kind of like throwing everything overboard. 
In verse 18, it says they were so violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison all the cargo. So they have to, they have to get rid of everything just to focus on this one thing, the storm, the, the boat breaking up. And at that point in our life, it was just about one thing. And we have to conserve all our energy for one thing. And there, was, there were times where it was so dark. It was like the, you, know, you couldn't see above the clouds, at least uh, emotionally and mentally. But I just remember trembling, like on my bed, literally trembling, and my teeth were chattering, and I couldn't, I couldn't sleep at all, like several nights in a row. I felt like I was descending into that first 20. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and all hope of being saved was abandoned. And those people were waterlogged. I mean, think about the conditions on the boat. They were seasick. They were nauseous. They probably stunk on board the ship. They were crammed together. It was salty. They were chapped. Their lips were chapped. They were sleep-deprived. But again, that is where, that's where God appears. That's where he shows up the most in those times. This very night, there stood before me a messenger of God, right when there's no hope. In the movie, The Perfect Storm, it's about a real storm that happened in 1991 uh, off the coast of New England. It was a hurricane got caught up with a nor'easter, and it created the perfect storm. And so this movie with George Clooney is about that storm. It's a really good movie. And um, there's one scene where the boat is going up a wave. It's a pretty big fishing boat, and it's literally like vertical, and you can see the wave is going to knock it back over. And the amazing thing about that movie is that the Coast Guard is sent in. This is a true story. On a, one of those huge Coast Guard helicopters, red and white, giant helicopters. And they're just above the waves. I guess they have to get down pretty low. Because the guys who are going to jump off the helicopter have got to be pretty near the ocean so it's not too far of a drop. And you see these two just jump in off of the safety of that Coast Guard helicopter. They jump into the chaos. So what? Surely it should have been their death. And I'll let you watch the movie to see if they die or not. But the Son of God, they probably wouldn't have made a movie about it, right, if, if they had. The Son of God, you know, in realms of eternal glory, uh, light, safety, comfort, perfection, he drops, you know, drops down into our brokenness and our chaos. He's in the storm with us. And in verse 35, it says, in the middle of that storm, Paul took took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and they ate and it's very mysterious like how could he have served the lord's supper on a boat but that's the exact same technical language that is always used in the new testament for the lord's supper and this meal certainly epitomizes god meeting us in the darkest place because it was on the night that he Remember, we love these rascals.